today we want to especially welcome our guest speaker, uh, Tom May, and his wife, Grace, uh, to be here with us. Um, so Tom spent his childhood uh, in Brunei and grew up in a small town, Duncan, in Cowichan Valley. Yes, I got it right, because I thought, yeah, it's yeah, the other place, but it's in um, BC. So he is married to Grace, and they have um, a lovely three lovely children and three granddaughters. And for 10 years, Tom and his wife, Grace, worked with Canadian Baptist Ministries, serving in China and Hong Kong. Um, and also his ministry involved transitioning uh, churches into multi-ethnic and multicultural con- congregations. He has also taught and worked with local seminaries, such as Cary and Trinity Western University. So welcome, Tom and Grace. The scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 27. We're reading the entire chapter, 44 verses. Paul seals for Rome. When it was decided that we we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, able to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul had said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, the storm. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw the opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Norista swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, 
we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Certes, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle up overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves the damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it would happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island, the shipwreck. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took the soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of all of them. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move. The stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the, so the prisoners to prevent, them, to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. 
but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we will pray for, uh, for Tom as he shares the word of God uh, with us today. Lord, we pray for Tom as he preaches your word with us. May your spirit fill him and may you be present with us. We pray that your word will encourage, strengthen, and challenge us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joseph. Well, it's really good to be here with you today. Um, I'm not used to being in this sanctuary with First uh, Baptist, but hey, it's great, isn't it? It's great, and uh, you're very blessed um, to be here. I don't know uh, if any of you here have been in a storm in the middle of the ocean. How many have been there? You know how bad it is, eh? Yeah, it's scary. I, like I, like uh, Joseph was saying, we were... Uh, uh, I spent my childhood in Brunei, and we were immigrating to uh, Canada uh, through Hong Kong. And on through Hong Kong, we had to uh, get on a, uh, a ship, uh, the President Wilson, uh, to get to San Francisco. Now everything was going fine. We, you know, we were kids, we were playing on board, and uh, there were lots of stuff, good stuff going on. And then there was these safety drills, you know, but we didn't really think a lot about the safety drills until we actually hit a storm out in the open ocean. It's scary. Yeah, I remember I had the top, top bunk which looked out the porthole over the ocean and all I could see was a wall of water. Can you imagine? Yeah, it was frightening. And, the, and, the, and we, mom had hang, hung all the clothing up you know, on the bars there and it was just swinging back and forth like that. And I'm telling you, this is a big boat, you know? It's a, it's a metal ship, you know, riding in the middle of the ocean. It's a scary thing. So uh, you kind of understood how small you you are in, in you know in, in times like this, right? So our passage this morning is takes place, of course, in the middle of a storm, um, threatening this uh, merchant ship headed for Rome from Alexandria. Um, We've read the whole passage. If you have some time, you can go back home and read it again. And you can, I think you can feel the desperation uh, of the folks uh, as they face a certain death. They risked everything to get there, but they have uh, lost. And the crew has lost control of the ship to the whirlwind. It says in verse 14, the word is, uh, Tophonikos, uh, which I think we believe we get the word typhoon from. A hurricane force gale that was bashing the ship against uh, the waves. The clouds had been so thick, uh, they hadn't seen sun or stars for many days. They hadn't eaten for many days. And by the time we get to this particular passage in verse 27, uh, verse uh, 20, Luke records their state of mind with these words. All hope of being saved, all hope of being saved was abandoned. 
And they knew they weren't going to get to Rome. Right? Now, if you are familiar with the journeys of St. Paul, you know that he had always wanted to go to Rome. Right? In uh, 56 AD, uh, uh, while he was ministering in Corinth, collecting uh, resources for the, um, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, he writes a letter from Corinth to the Romans. So we got the letter to the Romans where he tells them directly, I really want to come and see you. Right? I really want to be with you. Because Paul knew something that was really important. He knew that Rome was strategic in the mission of God to the world. And he wanted to get there because he knew all roads led to Rome. I think with the ease of air travel, there are many cities around the world today that are strategic in God's mission to the world. And in my view, Vancouver is one of those cities. Don't you believe that? Yeah. Much like Rome in the days of Paul, our location, our cultural and ethnic mix gives us an access to every nation and every tongue and every culture in the world. I was excited to read a little on your Heart for the City project. <laughs> it's bold and ambitious and I believe is an important, maybe even a critical part of God's strategy for the city and perhaps even the planet. So I encourage you not to lose heart for you, along with other congregations in this city and around the world, have been invited, listen to this, have been invited to participate in reshaping the destiny of humanity. Did you get that? You, us, have been invited by the one who spoke the heavens into being to participate in the human destiny. And one day, we were seeing this uh, you know, and the trump will resound and the Lord shall descend, right? And one day, right, one day, maybe closer than we think, St. John's vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in Revelation 21 will be a reality. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? And Vancouver, Rome are locations where God wants to incarnate himself through his people to rescue this planet. Now, how amazing is that? Just think about it. Reflect on that for a little while. The God who spoke the universe into being has chosen the people of, West, of First Baptist Church and others in the city to partner with them to finish his work. It's like Michelangelo, right? Looking around, he's working on the Sistine Chapel and he sees his apprentice standing beside him. He says, Giuliani, here's the brush. Finish it. Finish the Sistine Chapel. Isn't that the amazing to be invited to do something like that? Getting a little bit off track, but not entirely because as we look at our scene of 276 souls gathered around this odd-looking man, Right? Making by all imagination absurd claims that they're going to be saved through all this. You get the sense that there's more going on behind the scene than a storm that is threatened to destroy everything in its path, including their lives. 
Paul is headed to Rome, finally. <laughs> but I doubt he planned to get there as a, a prisoner in chains guarded by uh, Roman soldiers on a merchant ship. He's not the only prisoner. He's one of a group of prisoners. Many uh, were likely heading to Rome as a slaves market. Part of the cargo on a merchant ship bent on making profit. Paul is a prisoner not because he had committed any crimes. You, you can read this in uh, chapter 26. Paul was a prisoner by choice, appealing to G Caesar as a Roman citizen. And you, and this whole thing plays out from chapter 21 to chapter 26. And there's a lot going on in chapter 27, as you read. But I, for our purposes this morning, I just want to focus on uh, a, a small portion of it. When all efforts to save the ship seemed to be lost, and the people had given up on life, Paul stands up, shouting over the blast of the wind and the roar of the waves, and he cries out these words. He says, I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Unbeknownst to the crew and the passengers on that ship, it seemed that God had placed the apostle Paul on that boat so that they all might be saved. And seen as reminiscent of Jesus roused from his sleep uh, by his disciples because they feared for their lives as their boat was being bashed by winds and waves on a stormy sea. And St. Matthew, rest, re recollecting this incident on chapter 8 of his gospel, recalled Jesus asking them after they roused him, you know, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? And implicit in that question is the answer. Why are you afraid? I'm here. I'm here. I'm with you. And he calms the storm. And I'm told that the phrase, fear not or do not be afraid, occurs 365 times in the Bible. And when something is mentioned that many times, I think it probably is really important to our well-being. Do not be afraid. And in our text, it's not Jesus, but Paul, his representative, who was present. Nonetheless, the same encouragement, fear not, or do not be afraid, is extended to folks terrified of their present situation. Now, here's the thing. Jesus may, may calm a storm, or he may not, right? And in my experience, often he doesn't. But the invitation to fear not is offered just the same. And in my view, this offer is not so much an opportunity for us to dis dis display our courage. For if we're honest, only fools uh, do not fear danger. But the offer to fear not is the offer to trust. To trust that even in the storm and through the storm, God knows what he is doing. God, know what, God know what's, knows what he's doing. By th this time in our story, the crew and the passengers are discouraged 
demoralized, bone-tired, exhausted, drenched to the skin. They haven't eaten for days. They've made the best decisions they could have, but to no avail. And here they were, caught in an uncontrollable whirlwind, waiting for what looks like certain death. And in a last-ditch effort, they even give up making profit and start throwing their cargo overboard. And the soldiers were making ready to kill their human cargo. But thankfully, because of Paul, Julius the centurion stops them. Now, they've heard of storms like this before. They, have maybe, they have may, may even have lost friends to storms like this. Professionally, they knew they were lost. There was no hope of survival. They had done all they could. I imagine the chaos on that boat, on that ship, that, that the moment. The wind is throwing the boat back and forth. The men are throwing stuff over the sea. The, the, the sails have ripped. The boards have broken. And soldiers were getting ready for the slaughter. And into this lost, miserable, perilous moment stands this lowly, bold-legged, balding man, St. Paul. And he makes this impossible declaration. Take heart. Take heart. None of you will die but the ship will be broken. It's quite a declaration. And essentially, Paul is saying, don't worry, you'll survive. God told me so. And encourage us to take some food for the task ahead. And the language that, choo- that, that, that Luke chooses to describe this scene is, I think is very, very intentional, right? It's, it's verse 35. And when, he, and when he said these things, he took bread giving thanks to God. In the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Now, what does that remind you of? Eh? The communion, right? Luke 22. Jesus, during his most difficult trial, invokes a practice for his followers to emulate holy communion. And the center of it is the Eucharist. In fact, that's what it says, right? Give thanks. That simple action of breaking and blessing of bread and sharing of it with this community of lost souls, hope is rekindled. Eucharist, thanksgiving in the midst of darkness, despair, and violence is the anchor that will hold these frightened people together. Yes, their lives are still being threatened, but in this meal, in their participation and acceptance of it, St. Paul manages to redirect their focus away from what they knew was certain destruction, right? And to clutch onto and hold onto the thin line of hope that Paul had thrown them. God will save them. Could it be true? You can change, you can feel the change in mood. In verse 36, Luke Luke records for us these words. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out all the wheat into the sea. Well, how could you and I respond to our text 
and our story this morning. I just want to give you a couple of things that I kind of spoke to me as I read this text. The first thing is this, is that storms will strip away baggages that weigh us down. Storms will uh, strip away baggage that weighs us down. The reality is that living in a, in a fallen planet, storms will hit us out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. And for no reason, many times. This is our reality. But consider that storms may not be our enemy, but our demanding teacher. So fear not is good advice, as fear can distort or even exaggerate reality. But a sound mind, according to 2 Timothy 1.7, in the face of these storms can give us an opportunity to think outside of the box and strip away the unnecessary baggage that have blinded us to see what is really our most precious possession. Our most precious possession. Early on in our text, the management of the faded ship began the journey to make a profit, their merchant ship. Of course, that's what they want to do. They left Fahir in the port. Paul had suggested they remain for the winter. Uh, that he, as a, tra- a seasoned traveler, he knew that this was going to be a dangerous trip. The centurion, it says, and the, and the owner of the ship and the crew did not listen to him, right? After all, who is Paul? Just a lowly preacher. What did he know about piloting a ship and managing a company? No, the wise managerial decision was to get their cargo to a place to unload so they can get paid. And from a business point of view, it made sense. So, so they set sail for Phoenix, a port about 64 kilometers away, not too far, but much more lucrative than Fairhaven, and in a city that had much more entertainment than the small boring town of La Seine at Fairhaven's. Makes sense, doesn't it? We would probably all make, make that same decision if we were, if we were on that boat uh, with Paul. And even with the most capable leadership and the best advice and the latest and greatest equipment, the most advanced technology, we can still run into storms. Right? That can strip away the best laid plans. And what the crew and the passengers discover as the storm battered them day after day was they had to decide what was important to them. To keep the ship afloat, they began to throw away what they felt was the least valuable. And then one day at a time, right? Can you imagine that? They start throwing away more value, what they thought was more valuable, more valuable, until only their lives and their relationship together remained. Storms are normal phenomena in our fallen planet, but if we are able to work through them, we might discover that they can be our most able teachers, helping us to uncover the important truths about ourselves and about our world. The second lesson that I, you know, kind of uh, learned from this is that worship enabled us to, uh, to have a glimpse of a greater reality. Worship opens the door to a greater reality. In the middle of the storm, Paul takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to the crew and the passengers, announcing that God, the God whom he worshiped, 
keeping in mind that most of these guys there were worshiping other gods, right? They're mostly heathens. The God whom I worship, he says. On account of him wanting to get Paul to Rome, we'll save all of them. And in the midst of the blowing wind and the crashing waves, St. Paul, I don't, know, I don't know how he did it, but he performs the Eucharist. Breaking bread distributes it to the passengers. And for a moment, at least, peels back the veil of their current situation, allowing them a glimpse of a greater reality where God is king. And in that reality, nothing, even this menacing storm, can threaten the peace that comes with the reign of God. Worship directs us away from the circumstances of our lives, reminding us that our journeys, even troubled ones, are part of a larger narrative that God is writing, recognizing that God is somehow involved even when the circumstances seem to say contrary, change our perspective, and more importantly, changes us enabling us to hope even though there is no evidence of it. In 1943, perhaps you've heard this before, but bear with me if you have. In 1943, a young Jewish woman died in the concentration camp in Auschwitz. Her name was Etty Hillison. Under the gray skies and the broken earth between austere, ugly barracks not suitable to live in, in the midst of unspeakable human suffering, she wrote these words in her diary. You have made me so rich. You have made me so rich. Oh God, please let me share out your beauty with open hands. My life has become an uninterrupted dialogue with you. Oh God, one great dialogue. Sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, my feet planted on your earth, my eyes raised towards your heaven. Tears sometimes run down my face. Tears of deep emotion and gratitude. At night, too, when I lie in my bed and rest in you, oh God, tears of gratitude run down my face. That is my prayer. That is my prayer. And what this young woman discovers from her struggles was that when everything was stripped away from, away from her, even her, her humanity, there was still God. God was still there. And he cannot be stripped away, even by the tremendous evil and horror of the Holocaust. She was a young woman who really understood the power and freedom of worship. And those of us who are Christians need to, from time to time, and spend moments reflecting on worship. It may be that we come to places like this every Sunday and Nothing seems to be happening. Some of maybe even be bored and think it's a big yawn. But let me assure you, 
Worship, your worship, my worship is anything but boring. And every time we gather in worship, it's an intentional act of resistance. It's an intentional act of resistance to the forces that want to rip us apart and to tear us down. The one who spoke the universe into being has invited us to gather for a moment like this and pull back the veil of our reality than to see the greater reality that God is king. He's king, our king. And because of that, life is full of hope and possibility, even as the storm of life threatens our safety and well-being. We need not be afraid. For what does he say? What Paul says in Romans chapter 8, these words. If God is for us, who can be against us? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or death, danger or sword? And the inescapable answer to Paul's rhetorical questions is nothing. 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 Can separate us from the love of God. Worship pulls back the veil of the circumstances of our lives to the greater reality where God, the King, is for us. And even in and through our greatest troubles, struggles, and tribulations. Well, in closing, I, I don't have to tell you, and I'm going to convince you, that we live in, a tro in troubled times. Along with the world pandemic, we're not out of it yet. There's wars. War in the Ukraine, Afghanistan, Yemen, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Azerbaijan, Armenia. It goes on and on. There are 27 armed conflicts in the world this very moment. We don't even have to go out of Vancouver to know that the, the social unrest that is part of our city, homelessness, the opioid crisis, mental health, broken homes, climate change, inflation, <laughs> and the list is long. Isn't it? We're not on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean. But we are in a storm, nonetheless. And for such a time as this, along, we along with others in the city, like St. Paul, are called to embody the Christ and in worship peel back the veil of our present reality and declare the reality that God is King, even in this present situation, be it worldwide, or be it personal. No matter how dire or hopeless, well, this will give away. And that God's reign has and will continue to break through until one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Right? Jesus Christ is Lord. So I want to leave you 
folks of West Point, uh, <laughs> I wasn't West Point. <laughs> Sorry. First Baptist as well, we're sister churches. And folks of Central Presbyterian. For this challenge, imagine that you are Paul in the midst of the storm. Have you ever considered that you have been, you have a strategic role in God's mission to the world? And like Paul on that fated ship, you have a role to play in the salvation of the city. How might you break bread and give thanks and feed those frightened, exhausted folks, people at their wit's end, living in the city? Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for this word that you leave with us, these stories that continue to stir us, continue to challenge us, continue to help us understand who we are, and most importantly, who you are. And you have called us to this place for, this such a, for a time such as this, to embody the Christ in the middle of a storm in order that salvation might come. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.